Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Later in the show, I'll be talking tax to Cliff Taylor and Owen Burke Kennedy of the Irish Times, specifically about the OECD's efforts to frame a global digital sales tax that will satisfy the various demands of the 134 countries involved in this long-running process. So what will this mean for Ireland and will it mean that our bulging corporation tax receipts are filleted? Uh, but first, I'm joined in studio by Laura Slattery of the Irish Times to discuss some of the big business stories of the week. Laura, you're very welcome. Uh, we're going to talk about tax. We're going to start with Apple and this 13 billion euro state aid case, which goes back a number of years, uh, and which the European Commission found that Ireland had given a sweetheart deal to Apple. It's now being appealed by both Apple and Ireland, Ireland. in Luxembourg at the minute. That's right. It's in the EU's uh, second highest court which, of course, immediately brings up the prospect of any decision this time around being mm. appealed to the highest court. But essentially, lawyers for Ireland and for Apple have been having their say. Two days of hearings, which are we're on the second day of them at the moment, so they're not completed just yet. But we've heard a number of arguments, first of all, from Ireland, you know, saying that they believe that the Commission's uh, ruling back in 2016 was fundamentally uh, flawed. Apple has straight out denied that negotiations, if we call them that, but shall we say the, the the deal that they did with Ireland was tied in with sort of in exchange for, shall we say, uh, job creation here. And one of their points is that uh, of the two sort of deals that were done, one of them was in 1991, the other in 2007. And they point out that actually their employment in Ireland fell after 1991. But the European Commission, they made this ruling in the first place because they view it as illegal state aid as such that the negligible tax that Apple could pay as a result of Ireland's uh, policy was unfair and that it needs to repay this money, which you know has been collected and is sitting in, a, in an escrow account uh, pending these appeals, but we, we it's kind of I don't know which way it's going to go. As I say, whatever happens this time around is probably going to be appealed. Yeah, and of course the the bill is uh, clocking up here, not just in lawyers' fees, but also on that thirteen billion, which says in an escrow account. I mean, yeah. the interest is ticking up at a rate one, of knots. One point three billion already now. So really, you're mm. looking at fourteen point three billion, and it's a great deal of money to the state. Some people have questioned maybe the you know why why is Ireland appealing this, but they believe that they were in the right and the European decision was in the wrong. I mean this all came about because the chief executive of Apple started talking at a, at a public hearing about how 
Apple had paid an effective tax rate of less than 2% in Ireland um, over a period of a decade. And he said that at a hearing in 2013. And eventually the order was made after an investigation for repayment. And it took a while before even the money was collected. But as I say, there was always the intention to appeal. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, the decision has been sort of basically... Firmly rejected by Ireland, but uh, sure, we see. Uh, Ireland uh, tax is a national competence, obviously, and Ireland has been very keen to protect uh, its right to set a competitive rate of tax. Of course, we have the twelve and a half percent corporate tax rate; that's the headline rate. Um, but what's what what Apple and, and Ireland are being accused of here is, is something completely different. Joe Brennan of the Irish Times is over there, um, and he was writing the other day that um, the ruling is expected uh, as early as the end of this year. But as you say, likely to be mm. appealed and it could run for up to four years before we get a final verdict. And this has already been in train essentially since 2013. I mean, it's, it sort of hangs on on kind of, you know, how do you define the activities of the companies that Apple has here in Apple Sales International and Apple Operations Europe, they're called. And technically they were the head office divisions, but only the profits related to the, the Irish branches within those subsidiaries were, were taxed here. But the European Commission you know, argues that that was incorrect. Well, it, says, uh, it was just blindingly accepted by the... Well, revenue. yeah, I mean, that doesn't look very good. That was in today's hearing now that the European Commission said that Ireland had just basically rolled over in effect when Apple came up with a kind of a formula for how much it should be taxed in Ireland. And it used this phrase, it blindingly accepted the proposals and it doesn't paint Ireland in a great light. No, it, it doesn't do much for our reputation internationally. Although it should be said, Luxembourg, Poland and I think some other countries are kind of rowing in behind us uh, with some support. Um, now we'll move to uh, a matter that uh, might be part of Budget 2020. It's to do with the motor trade. They're pleading with the government to tighten regulation on used car imports. There's been a huge number of uh, imports that come into this country over the past uh, couple of years, largely to do with the fact that sterling has declined substantially in value against the euro. It's made these imports much more attractive financially uh, for people here. Um, and this is an issue that the, the motor trade industry are, are having to grapple with, and they're urging the government to take some measures in the budget. Yeah, I mean, this is actually one of the starkest and I guess most immediate impacts that we saw in this country as a result of just the referendum result. And that's this spike, as you say, because of the sterling weakness in used car imports. And there was a report out this week from the Society of the Irish uh, Motor Industry, SIMI, uh, that predicts that new car sales are going to fall as low as 80,000 if there's no deal Brexit. That's according to economist Jim Power. And, you know, just to put it in that perspective, that it's about 115,000 this year. But And if there's a tax increases in the budget, Jim Power reckons they can go as low as 70,000. But at the same time, used car imports are, are going up in the other direction. So we're looking at maybe that being the larger part of the market. And so this is, yeah, it's a bit of a pre-budget plea to, you know, first of all, yeah, don't, you know, we don't want any more taxes, but also... That maybe something can be done about this trend because a lot of the used car imports aren't great environmentally. There's maybe a way of kind of uh, finessing the taxes on cars so that these sort of polluters, in effect, are less cost advantageous for for buyers. Um, You know, Simi says that basically Britain is is only too delighted to get rid of these old vehicles because they're probably going to be banned on environmental grounds at some point anyway. But they're just such well, great... Well, no, hold on a second. Uh, Simi members have been selling <laughs> these vehicles as new vehicles for uh, many, many years, uh, I, I would have thought. And the other thing that strikes me is that we, we have all of this talk for the past three years about uh, the border issue uh, with uh, Britain, uh, UK coming mm. out of the European Union. 
as a result of Brexit? How are we going to ensure that there's no hard border between North and South of Ireland? And yet here we have a protectionist measure, measure essentially being called for by uh, one uh, industry in the state, asking the government to effectively put a, a border in place between uh, the North and the Republic in terms of uh, used car imports. We want you to jack up the tax yeah, or the I mean, levy being charged and these vehicles coming across that border. We don't want that. We want you to stop them from <laughs> coming across. I see your point. There is all of this chit-chat about it. And surely this is a part of being uh, of, of the single market. There is a bit of a cake and eat it thing with it, all right. But for sure, I don't think you can, you know, stop used car imports. But maybe you can tinker with the taxes, as I say, so that it's a little bit less of a kind of a almost no-brainer for people to, to choose wants them. Presumably the same they also want taxes jacked up on second-hand, these awful second-hand uh, cars being sold in the Republic well, by their members. You have to look for some coherence in their environmental policy. I'm sure that, that they have thought that through, but the moment the, the real concern is this potential um, dip, further dip yeah. in new car sales. All right, we'll see what Pascal Dunne, who has up his sleeve uh, when he comes to announce the budget on October 8th. Now, we work. Uh, everybody was waiting for this IPO, some some excitedly, some not so. Uh, it appears a lot not so because uh, WeWork has pulled the IPO. Yeah, I mean, speaking of coherence, there hasn't been a lot of it in the story of WeWork. We've talked about it on this podcast a few times. Just explain what WeWork do. What are they <laughs> They about? are an office sharing company, mm. but essentially they are a property company. They buy up uh, properties and then they let them to other companies or in fact they rent they actually rent they actually rent rather than, a lot of the time rather than, than own the office space so it's kind of a sort of a middleman really and um, it had been uh, approaching an, an initial public offering and it had been planned that it could be uh, you know, bonanza, they were saying, of up to 47 billion, they were saying at the start of the year, based on a private valuation. When they actually started testing this with investors, it was looking more like 20 billion, so that's less than half, which is quite a huge drop. And some people, some reports were saying that they were really going to fetch closer to 10 billion. And, um, you know, this is a loss making company, as I say, they've never made a profit. And they are fast expanded all around the world. They're in something like 500 different locations, over 100 cities. And it really looks a bit like a little bit of a, one of these hyped up IPOs that we more commonly see in the tech sector. And in fact, their whole thing has to be brand themselves as a kind of a, a tech startup vibe. And people are saying, well, actually, no, this is really actually like a property industry thing. And where has this valuation come from? It doesn't really make any sense. And coupled with that, there's been some sort of corporate governance concerns. The co-founder there is the chief executive, Adam Neumann. And he was sort of basically sort of uh, having a, a, looking for a kind of a, a nice situation where he was retaining quite a lot of, of voting power despite being a, a minority shareholder. But he also was paid a controversial $5.9 million by his own company in exchange for rights to the we name which, you know, he was said to own. Now, that's actually been repaid. Um, there was a vote to curb some of his voting power. There was a sort of efforts to make this IPO look a bit more attractive and, shall we say, normal. But it's been postponed. Um, there is, in fact, still an incentive to have it 
happen before the end of the year because they have the access to about six billion in finance that's from bankers that's predicated on there being an IPO this calendar year. And there's an awful lot of big interests in this, including uh, the Japanese investment company SoftBank, which owns a good a good chunk of this company. And I kind of you have to wonder now is 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 there going to be some kind of financial push to go ahead in order to not to miss out on this potential six billion pot for expanding even further? And if they do that, are they actually just setting up a whole house of cards here because it just it looks like a very very bubbly company? Yeah, Adam uh, Neumann says he was humbled by this whole episode and uh, accepted that he needed to learn some lessons about running a public company, namely that you should try and make a profit. I mean, it's not ideal when somebody says that on the on the yeah. verge of an IPO. Um, I mean, their IPO perspective, prospectus was like teased through, you know, at length for a number of clangers, including I think at one point they sort of said, oh, we may choose not to comply with certain corporate governance standards, you know. It's like, oh, really? Mm. Okay. Um, but we don't work might be a better name <laughs> we for, don't work for this exactly. how about that um, alright Laura thank you for that I will take a short break now when we return I'll be talking to Cliff Taylor and Owen Burke Kennedy of the Irish Times about the OECD's efforts to frame a global tax for multinationals back in a few moments only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement Irish Life is changing that with Empower a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future for more go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant we know Irish Life we are Irish Life Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland all information source for Irish Life June 2015 Welcome back to this Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now on Tuesday, Minister for Finance Pascal Donoghue and Pascal Santamans of the OECD were among the speakers at the PwC Irish Times Tax Summit in the Western Hotel in Dublin. Among the topics up for discussion were the OECD's efforts to find a global solution to the thorny issue of the taxation of multinational companies. Something that's hugely important for Ireland, given that so many of the tech giants have their regional headquarters here. Joining me in studio to discuss this issue are Cliff Taylor and Owen Burke Kennedy. Owen, we might start new. You were reporting on the tax summit, and it was a very interesting discussion. Just frame for us um, briefly, if you will, what the OECD's BEP process is all about and why it's important for Ireland. Okay, so about four years ago, there was a massive international outcry about the lack of tax and the tax avoidance that these multinationals were, I suppose, getting away with. And the OECD has fronted a kind of global operation to try and get a compromised set of rules where all countries will agree to. So uh, they're going to present a kind of compromise or a framework uh, package at the end of next year. And ultimately, without getting into the minutia of it, it's going to decide how much profit um, uh, that can be allocated to a business in a given jurisdiction. So that has massive implications for Ireland when you think that Apple funnels huge amount of its global and European profits through Ireland. So the potential uh, for Ireland to, to lose a lot of that is, is pretty high. So the headquarters is here, but the sales activity... Uh, essentially, most of it isn't here because it's only a small market. Yeah. Most of it is taking place in other countries around Europe, the Middle East, Africa, uh, etc. And they're trying to come up with a framework where essentially um, the likes of France, Germany, countries right across the region will get a, a share of this or will be able to tax some of this profit on activity going through their countries. Exactly. So they want to move profits closer to sales. Yeah, if you like. And that has big implications for us. And we've seen a huge uh, swelling of our corporate tax base in the okay. last four years. It's jumped from four billion to over 10 billion. All so right. big now, implications for us. It's a very complex area. And uh, the 
whole process has been going on now for a number of years, still has a road to travel. Let's have a little listen to what Pascal Santaman, who's a, a senior director at the OECD, the man who is uh, very much on the front line in dealing with this issue. Let's hear what he had to say to delegates at the PwC Irish Times tax note. I think that the tax reform is such a fundamental change and as Pam said, largely bipartisan in a sense on the international tax dimension of it, um, that it sets the scene for further changes globally. Now the question I would have is, shall we achieve these um, smoothly in the coming months or will this be erect one way or another by an external factors or by lack of confidence or trust between the players, in which case it will happen, but in a few years after chaos. So I, I, I think, will it happen? Yes, I think so. Because the US tax reform, which opened the door to this fundamental change, which is long overdue. But when shall we get it? That I don't know. I'm glad you bet on me. Uh, um, <laughs> But, it, I mean, you have so many different factors uh, at stake that it's risky. So far, so good. Very positive. Uh, we have positive engagement from the US, from the European countries, which had been divided. Now they're moving, I think, in the right direction from non-OECD countries, from developing countries. Because I think it would not make sense to come up with a solution if you have a big constituency of countries saying, no way, we're not going to implement that. Uh, Cliff Taylor. Very interesting there what Pascal Santamans was saying. He he basically suggested at the summit, look, there's about 134 countries that are involved in this. There will be some winners and losers. And when you put all of the numbers on the table, Ireland could well be a loser. Uh, however, he was suggesting that the alternative to the framework that they're trying to work out, this compromise agreement, is that there will be complete chaos in the market and we'd be even bigger losers in that situation. Yeah, I mean, he made a point that uh, countries are sovereign in their own tax affairs, if you like, they can decide what to do themselves. And we've already seen countries act, starting to act unilaterally, a number of European countries uh, imposing or threatening to impose digital yeah, sales taxes. France, UK, Spain, yeah, Italy. Italy. Uh, so that's happening. Some of them are now deciding to hold off to see what comes out of the OECD process. There's been this massive shakeup in the US tax regime, as we know, uh, with a minimum corporate tax rate applying there. Uh, so there's been a lot of change and with the political pressure to collect more from these companies and with the exchequers looking at countries like Ireland and the huge bonus we're getting and saying we'd like a bit of that pie, uh, I think if there isn't a global agreement we're going to see more of this chipping away. So dangers for Ireland in either approach. I think what Minister for Finance Pascal Dunn who indicated is we would prefer a deal. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, actually we, we have a clip from Pascal Dunn, why don't we play it now? Whatever emerges from these discussions at the OECD will bring change. And these discussions will be particularly challenging for small, open, export-orientated countries such as ours. But we must and we will engage, and we must and we will make our voice heard. And we'll do this because it is in our interest that this work is successful at ensuring the continuation of a stable tax framework into the future. The certainty and stability 
that such an agreement would bring to the international tax landscape will allow companies to make investment decisions with greater confidence and will facilitate countries' fiscal planning, which in turn will support growth and job creation. Cliff, uh, interesting what Pascal Dunhu was saying, and interesting the, the shift uh, in tone from the Irish government over the past number of years, because if you went back probably five or six years, um, the Irish government would have been totally opposed to this, and they would have rejected any suggestion of the need for a global solution to uh, digital sales, let's say. But uh, we, we've definitely changed our tune, haven't we? We have, yeah. Real politic, I suppose. Uh, we've been um, the doctor no of the European tax harmonisation movement for years, along with the UK, who've been uh, standing beside us on this. Uh, and together with them, we've fought off various proposals for a common corporate tax base across Europe. But Ireland's calling card at this is we prefer the OECD process. So we're, I guess we're being caught in our own in our own tactics. Yeah. We, we, we've had to uh, sign, we've signed up to the OECD process. We thought it was more favourable to us than what the EU was threatening, and it probably is. But it is, does still carry dangers. And I think what the minister was saying was, okay, I sign up for this. I realise there are some risks to us. And as Owen was saying, um, one of the risks is of of some profit being taxed in countries where sales are made. But I think he also did lay down a marker that Ireland was going to insist on its tax sovereignty in certain areas. And I think one of the things that Ireland is really worried about is the proposal for a minimum corporate tax rate, a minimum rate that would apply on the profits of these companies. In principle, that may or may not be dangerous to us. It all depends on on the detail. And there are aspects of the detail of that, I think, that are very sensitive for Ireland. The rate at which the tax is set and whether that tax has to be paid on a global basis by a company or whether it has to be paid in each jurisdiction because we won't accept Europe or, sorry, the OECD or any agreement that says we have to change our 12.5% corporate tax rate. So very sensitive issues for Ireland there. Yeah, now Ireland's in the crosshairs of this because other countries feel that we've been involved in some hokey-cokey tax arrangements with these various multinationals who have based themselves in Ireland for regional purposes, um, we all uh, recon- recall fondly the double Irish, uh, which has been phased out. Uh, and we have this uh, very curious Apple arrangement uh, from some years ago, which is the subject of a state aid case that's going on in Luxembourg at, at the minute. And Apple has been directed by the European Commission to repay $13 billion, uh, in unfair state aid. As the Commission sees it now, Apple and Ireland are appealing that. But we really haven't helped ourselves in this uh, whole scenario, have we? No, and I think the real politic of this is because the European headquarters of these companies are here, we have been part of a chain of multinational tax avoidance, if, if you'd like to call it that. Now, I don't think we've been on our own there, and a lot of it's been based on US tax rules, have, which have been in place for years and, yeah. and have only and, now been changed. And the thing is, we stand behind but, this 12.5% rate, which we've yeah. had in place now for a number of years, and we say that's absolutely sacrosanct. Mm. But the reality is that there were a lot of other schemes and arrangements in, in place which allowed multinationals to pay a lot less than 12.5%. Yeah, they were probably paying 12.5% or close to it on the income they earned in Ireland. But that was only a very small portion of the money that was moving through their Irish operations because they were collecting money from Germany, France, all the big markets across Europe was coming through here. You know, debatable how proper or right these arrangements were, but things like the double Irish have certainly left us in in, in the crosshairs now. Um, And notable, I think, as Owen reported, that Pascal Santamon hinted 
or, or said at the uh, at the tax summit that Ireland did the right thing to abolish this in 2015, but did the wrong thing in extending it to 2020 for the companies that were already here because the attitude of everyone else is, well, you know, they still haven't got rid of it. It's still here. Uh, so very sensitive issues and, and a difficult balance for Ireland. We have, I mean, frankly, bent over backwards for the multinationals for years. We've got a huge return for it in terms of jobs. Ironically, we've got a huge return in terms of tax revenue from the first phase of the OECD process. Uh, but now we're, I That's think we're under pressure. the last year or two. True, the last three or four years, maybe. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But I, as Owen said, I think we're going to, you know, our revenue is, is under threat now and, and we are under threat yeah, and, we'll, and under pressure here. We'll come to that in a minute. Fintan O'Toole uh, did a very strong column in the Irish Times earlier this week mm-hmm. saying that Ireland uh, has made a miscalculation in appealing this Apple case, which is going on in Luxembourg. Joe Brennan's covering it for the Irish Times, doing a great job over there. Um, and it's a complex issue. Uh, we're not yeah. going to go into the full detail of it here and now. But in essence, do you think he's right? I mean, he described it as tax piracy. And it's it's hard to, uh, on one level, it's hard to yeah. disagree with him because the rate of tax I think Apple was paying at one stage was 0.005%. Sure. Interestingly, the I think the Apple hearings in the US Congress were kind of a, a turning point in this whole debate internationally when Tim Cook and his executives turned up and, you know, shrugged their shoulders and said, look, we were paying all the tax we were due to pay. And the senators were presenting them with arrangements saying, well, this t- this ended up being tiny taxation on your global operations. You know, what's the story here? And, and they say, we're, we're, we're pay- we pay all the tax that was due and Apple still say that. Um, personally, I found the, the judgment uh, made by the European Commission very odd. Uh, I, I think it's very strange to hold that this tax was due in Ireland. I can't see why it would be due in Ireland. I can see why they, they should be paying more tax on these profits. From a common sense point of view, you think perhaps the US exchequer was the one that, that, that had lost out or, 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 or had, had largely lost out. Interestingly, the judgment said that it was up to other European states to come forward and claim part of this pot that the Commission wasn't entirely sure where it should be paid. So I think that I, I, my personal view is that the Commission's judgment was as much political as it was technical. It was making a statement. It was making a statement that we are doing something about this problem. Uh, and Ireland was, was, was caught in the middle of it. So you think Ireland, Ireland is right yeah, to I, fight its corner on this? I, I do, yeah. I think, it's a, I think it's an odd, I think it was an odd decision by the European Commission. But... Oh, we should have got as, Fintan O'Toole on this. Uh, absolutely. On this but as, as Fintan said, politically, yeah. it is a very tricky wicket for Ireland to be on because we're saying, we don't want this 13 billion. Thanks very much. Uh, we prefer it to stay in Apple's pocket. Oh, and let's put some hard numbers on what Ireland might lose out on in terms of corporate tax revenue if these OECD proposals ever come to pass. We had a record bounty last year, didn't we? Yeah, 10.4 billion, uh, which is 6 billion. Uh, ahead of what we were getting in 2014. I mean, just unbelievable mm. numbers. And of course, the government have been criticised for using this windfall to paper over cracks in, in other areas of its expenditure. So no one really has eyes on what sort of shortfall or what sort of downturn in corporation tax these proposals would lead to, largely because the compromise position, or as uh, Santa Man suggested, the price of compromise hasn't been you know exacted exactly. But um, Seamus Coffey did a report uh, one or two years ago where he looked at... um, Seamus Coffey of the the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. Yeah, uh, where he looked at basically the proposals in Europe for a a common consolidated tax base. Now, he said that that our corporation tax base could could be wiped out by up to 50% 
in that sort of scenario. Now, the question is, how close are those proposals to the BEPS proposals? They share some common points. They, they, they differ in other areas. But, I mean, they're the sort of the, the, the big numbers we're talking about. So, um, Santa Man said yesterday, you know, there can be no big losers or big winners in this process, which is interesting because then you can't have compromise. So, it, you know, Ireland wants to compromise, but could it compromise to the point where it could destruct half its, its corporation tax base? It seems... That wouldn't be a good but he also made the point that while you, on the one hand, you'll lose revenue, that's how you'll be mm. a loser in all of this, you will win in terms of certainty. It'll hopefully, once and for all, put an end to this debate and provide a framework within which Ireland can operate in the certain knowledge that X amount of uh, corporate tax revenues are going to flow our way and, you know, France, Germany, whoever... They won't be trying to get their paws on it. Yeah, and, and his point is, I mean, you might think ta- tax certainty is a bit of a nebulous sort of concept internationally, but his point is that he told Michael Noonan back in 2015 that once this process started and companies saw how it was going, that Ireland would benefit. And we have benefited because there's been a massive onshoring of assets here. So on one level, he's kind of right that Ireland has looked on as part of a kind of non-tax haven, normal country where, you know, there is substance. So we have benefited. Uh, so to a certain extent, he does have a point. And then his other point is if there is no compromise and the whole global framework moves fail and we move to a situation where countries are acting unilaterally and we mentioned earlier France has, has legislated to impose a 3% you know, digital sales tax, we will be the losers in that because then it will be a free-for-all and our maybe unique 12.5%, our unique position may become less unique. Mm. Is he right, Cliff, to say that there will be certainty going forward and that this will kind of once and forever put an end to the whole debate? Uh, maybe not forever, but I think uh, if a deal is done and if it is sufficiently tied down and the implementation happens, it probably does put the issue to bed for, for a period of time because it's, it it will be, if if what's on the table is agreed, it'll be the biggest shake-up in corporate tax that we've seen in, you know, in, in a couple of generations, yeah, sure. in a hundred years. So... I think a deal would, would, would put the issue to bed for a period, all right. And what are the chances of getting a deal? Because we're talking about 134 countries, some big, some small, some very big. Sure. Uh, and some very small. So a lot of horse trading needs to be done. A lot of compromises are going to have to be agreed. Sure. So what are the chances of getting a deal? Technically, I don't think any, I don't think any single country can veto a deal. You know, no, if, if, if Ireland puts up its hand and says no, I don't think that, that stops the whole thing going ahead because everyone else can go ahead anyway. But what Pascal Santaman said was, we look, we need all the main players involved. We need all the blocks of countries involved. There's no point in the developed countries doing a deal and the developing ones not signing up. But it does appear that the wind is behind this deal now. And the crucial thing has been that the US have thrown their weight behind it. What about China? Hard to know, but for the moment, they seem to be on board as well. Insofar as as we can tell, all the main players seem to be in the room. Russia, India? Heading the same direction. He did reference India as one of the the key constituencies to be be dealt with. Um, The US attitude, obviously, with Trump and the White House could, could change overnight, could change in a tweet. Um, There's an election uh, next election year. In the the, US, the, the re- final report isn't due until the end yeah. of next year, so we, you know, there could be a, a change of president sure. in America but imminent. If this is going to be worked out, it has to be worked out in the next. There has to be a political consensus in the next, say, six months, uh, ideally by the end of this year, because such are the technicalities of this uh, that it's going to take another nine months or a year to work out the, the fine print. So I think the thing to watch now in the in the weeks ahead, the months ahead, is. The OECD are going to table a compromise. You know, here's our best guess, whatever you might agree to. 
and we'll see does everyone sign up to that and is there kind of a broad political consensus that to move forward on that basis because if that's locked down then it, the deal will 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 look like it's on all right and remember this political this political push for these companies to pay more tax because of the kind of things you re- you've referred to and the egregious kind of conduct of these companies is is strong all over the world now you know there is support for this it's a populist issue uh, it's it's a win-win for the exchequers i think the big companies themselves have signed up for it to some extent I think I because they have to they because they have to exactly yeah. not because they want to because they have to it's their corporate reputation so I think good chance it'll happen uh, but as he said you know this can yeah. fall as, this can fall as well now talking about elections we could have an election in Ireland in the next sort of six to nine months mm-hmm. um, are Fianna Fáil on the same page as uh, Fianna Gael because Fianna Fáil you know it's going to be a change of administration it's probably going to be led by Fianna Fáil I think so um, I mean every the, the 12.5% corporate tax rate is kind of a a holy grail of of Irish politics, and nobody nobody disagrees with that. Um, I I can't see whoever is in government, whatever combination of parties might be in government, you know, taking a different approach because we we really don't have a lot of we don't have a lot of options here. Um, it does look like some of the taxing rights are going to move away from Ireland for some of the profit reported here. We we might lose a bit from that, as Owen said. Who knows how much that might be. Uh, whether it will be moderate, uh, how it will relate to the big increase we've seen in corporate tax. But I think the real fight is going to be over this. If Ireland gets involved in a scrap here, it's going to be over this minimum corporate tax rate. How does it work? What rate is it set at? Because that could undermine our 12.5% rate by the back door. And that is the the central point of, of our of our marketing, marketing of these companies or marketing to these companies. You know, long story short... Ireland will will try to insist that we can still compete on the basis of tax to attract investment. And there is a risk that this process will undermine that. Yeah, and there does seem to be an acknowledgement, I think, at OECD level that smaller countries, um, they do need some sort of an advantage, those on the periphery. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the European Union, they kind of recognise that Ireland is on the periphery of the EU and it does need... It needs something um, yeah. to to help uh, the economy and to help us sell the country for does, uh, we've, foreign multinationals. We've possibly done almost too well in the last few years in terms of attracting companies and getting tax revenue because other companies, countries are surely looking at yeah. our corporate tax figures and saying, sure. well, that's, that's, that's what uh, Santa Man said yesterday, that effectively we'd been too successful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Owen, Brexit and the budget came up uh, somewhat in the tax um, summit uh, as well. I mean, budget-wise, it, it looks like it's going to be a really boring budget. Pascal Donoghue uh, has made it no clear. Change, <laughs> well, he's made it clear that it's going to be a sort of safe and prudent one um, and it's going to deal with uh, the potential for a no-deal Brexit scenario. So it doesn't look like there's going to be any giveaways. No, I mean, in one way that perhaps suits uh, Minister Donoghue to keep a tighter rein on public finances. Um, They've been under strain a bit of late, especially with overruns in health. On on the other hand, with a potential election around the corner, would he like some leeway to maybe cosy up to the electorate? You know, so he he, he, it's a bit of a mixed blessing. But at the moment, um, you know, it's 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 not obvious which way Brexit is going to turn, and it's not obvious that there's going to be a one shock, and then maybe an emergency budget. It 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 seems to me that it, this process may go on. There may be more turmoil. There may be more predictions. There may be more effects to keep coming and coming and coming. And I imagine that the government are just going to try and motor on with their budgets. Mm, now you were at a briefing by the Irish uh, Tax Institute. 
uh, sort of a, a pre-budget. Uh, and they were suggesting that there are a lot of people in the economy who aren't paying any income tax uh, at the minute. And maybe this wasn't fair. Yeah, this is a pretty sensitive issue to bring up, but it's something that's uh, they've from time to time touched on. So their point is there's about uh, 2.7 million income earners in the economy and over 750,000 of those are outside the tax loop. So their point is that for the tax system to become more stable uh, and more certain, we've got to tax these people uh, based on their means. So a lot of people in in this group are obviously on very, very low wages and it's a very emotive issue to talk about taxing them. But the Tax Institute's point is that the Irish tax, uh, uh, you know, base is, is, is under threat from a number of different issues internationally, from changes to uh, global trade, from Brexit, a lot of areas. And the minister needs to move to a more stable base. And so that involves taking more people on low income. So they have they have amazing figures for um you know uh, pe- pe- people on seventy earning seventy five thousand uh, euros a year are paying you know eight and ten times the tax that people who are earning under thirty thousand a year. Now the question is is that fair? Should that differential be changed or is it legitimate? Yeah, uh, Cliff, what do you think? Is is it right that seven hundred and fifty thousand people aren't paying uh, tax on their income? I think there's a case for everyone to pay a small amount, or for most people to pay a small amount. I mean, and that's what the USC was designed for. I wasn't was just it? It was supposed to, to capture everybody in, yeah, in the tax yeah. net in some way. I was just about to say that when the USC was introduced, it caught pretty much everybody. Um, so what happened in the in the years after twenty twelve when things were started to be unwound, the emergency measures were were starting to be unwound, was that the the level at which the US, the level of income at which the USC kicked in for people kept being increased because it was a politically popular thing to do um, because it took a lot of people out of the USC net uh, while at the same time not costing very much because these, these people don't earn very much. But still it chipped away at the tax base and meant that more and more of the uh, burden falls on higher earners and middle-income earners, the so-called squeezed, the so-called squeezed middle. So now if you earn... Um, Thirteen thousand pounds, sorry, thirty thousand euro or less. You don't pay any USC. That's the that's the current level. Um, there's been talk of merging the USC and PRSI and reforming the whole system. Leo Varadkar a couple of years ago was very hot on the whole idea of everyone paying a little and the PRSI system extending further down the income level and people getting more in return in terms of benefits. But that has proved very difficult to do, and really nothing has happened on that score in the last few years. I think it's a reasonable idea that everyone should pay a small amount for, for benefits, but the Irish tax system is now set up uh, to exclude a lot of people from paying. And A relief once given is very hard to reverse, unfortunately. Yeah, sure. And the other point here, and I might mention, uh, that the Irish Tax Institute mentioned was uh, local property tax. And obviously the values that inform that need to be changed and the government have been dragging its heels or maybe afraid to, to grasp the nettle. That is going to be pretty difficult sell for for it when the values are changed after, you know, five or 10 years of rising house values. So that's an area that is a very stable tax source for the government, but uh, a very unpopular measure. Yeah, sure. Uh, Cliff, we'll finish on Brexit uh, quickly, if you don't mind. Uh, It's, well, it's, I mean, things are moving on uh, every day, aren't they? In the UK, the Supreme Court is uh, is sitting here in this Gina Miller uh, case, it's an appeal effectively against a, a Scottish judgment um, that uh, Boris Johnson acted unlawfully in proroguing mm. Parliament for as long as he did um, and all sorts of 
scenarios are playing out and Boris in the meantime has been in Luxembourg and he's going elsewhere to try and uh, or so he says to try and get a deal with the European Union how do you see this playing out? Good question as I say very difficult to say I think it's very hard to see how a deal will reach by, will be reached by the end of October between Boris Johnson and the EU uh, on the basis of what's happened so far unless number one Boris Johnson retreats completely and accepts most of what was in Theresa May's agreement with maybe a little bit dressed up or unless he decides to sell the DUP down the river if you like and, and, and accept the original idea that the north of Ireland would be Northern Ireland, should I say, would be carved off from the rest of the UK and so it'd be in, Northern, in, Ireland, in, only in backstop. Northern Ireland only backstop. And then you, you get into the issue: could he get that through the House of Commons? There's a lot of very big hurdles. Um, and then the question is: okay, if a deal isn't done, and there is a law being passed through the British Parliament now, which says that he can't have a no deal exit by the end of October, that he has to apply for an extension, and is there a way around that, or is there not? Uh, hard to see a British Prime Minister breaking the law. So obviously, uh, but a lot of things have happened in the last few months that we never would have expected. So yeah, sure. And of course, he wants a general election, doesn't he? But so he does. far, Jeremy does. Corbyn and others have resisted. They have. Um, you know, some theory that he could resign allegedly, or uh, get, pretending that it's in a fit of peak that he can't uh, achieve his goal by the end of October, get somebody else to apply for the extension. And, go, and, and a general election will be held on that basis. But really, the British political situation is so fraught at the moment that I would be very, I think it would be a brave person who would, who, who would forecast what's going to happen next. Yes, indeed. An Irish Times columnist, Chris Johns, is very strong every week in his columns on uh, Brexit. Made He spoke at the tax summit as well. And he, he made the point that whichever way uh, it blows, whether it's um, whether they leave with no deal or they end up with a second referendum, mm. Britain is in for years of uncertainty and division. He did. Uh, and he made the point very strongly. And I think to add to that, uh, looking at a speech that Pascal Donoghue made earlier this week, uh, he made the point that official British policy now, as expressed by Boris Johnson and, and his government, assuming they remain in government, of course, is for the UK to diverge in regulatory terms from the EU over a period of years. So that means that deal or no deal, the, the Irish border is a problem, and deal or no deal, trade between the UK and the EU and thus Ireland and the UK is a problem it's in the years ahead yeah. because if if Britain wants to leave the EU regulatory ambit and join wherever or whoever or try and make up its own rules and uh, not easy to do um, then all these problems remain to be negotiated and remain to be sorted out and it's very hard to see a way forward. All right, Cliff, no doubt we'll be talking to you about Brexit uh, again before October 31st and probably after it as well, I suspect. Um, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Laura Slattery, Cliff Taylor and Owen Burke Kennedy. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed each day on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started.